0: Welcome to Forum Fest, the Westminster Town Hall Forum's new summer series that engages the public in reflection and dialogue on important issues of our day. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of Forum Fest. It's my pleasure to introduce this evening's guest speaker. Dr. Johan von Schrieb is a surgeon, a health emergency analyst, and a noted humanitarian. For over 20 years, he has provided medical assistance and disaster relief in Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, Sudan Darfur, Pakistan, and most recently in Haiti. He has worked with Doctors Without Borders and with the World Health Organization, and he is the founder of Sweden's chapter of Doctors Without Borders. He's based in Stockholm, Sweden, at one of Europe's largest medical universities, the Karolinska Institute, which is also known for appointing the laureates of the Nobel Prize in medicine. At the institute, Dr. von Schrieb leads a team of researchers focused on bringing medical relief to disaster areas, particularly in developing countries. Tonight he will offer his perspective on the recent crisis in Haiti and provide a deeper understanding of the obstacles, the challenges encountered in bringing healthcare to disaster areas around the world. We are honored that he has flown from Sweden to be with us tonight at Forum Fest. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Forum Fest, Dr. Johan von Schrie.
1: Thank you very much for that uh, introduction and thank you very much for inviting me to come here to speak tonight. I'm honored. Um, It is easy, I think, to speak about assistance to populations in danger in a a non-provocative way. It's easy to talk about all the good things you have done, etc. But that's not what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to try to be provocative and challenging because I think that's the way we can move forward. That's the way we can do things better. And I'm looking forward to an interesting discussion after my presentation. So I'm a medical doctor specialized in surgery. And since more than 20 years, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, MSF, Doctors Without Borders, or as it it is called, Médecins Sans Frontières. It is a French organization. We mustn't forget that. It's called MSF, and I will relate to that. 17 years ago, I started the Swedish branch of uh, MSF and was its president for the first seven years. And in my current work, I try to combine medical fieldwork in disasters worldwide with research on how relief work can be better adapted to the needs of the affected population and to the context. I strive to develop evidence for better medical practices in disasters. And as was said earlier, I'm based at the Karolinska Institute. That is a medical university. And this year, Karolinska Institute celebrates 200 years of existence. In 1810, it was founded by King Carl XIII because a third of all the king's soldiers that was injured in the war with Russia died in the field hospitals. The barbers that were the surgeons at the time were not good enough. So the task for Karolinska Institute was to improve the skills and better organize the barbers, and actually even introduce surgeons that was not initially doctors. They were initially barbers. So that's where I come from, from the barbers. I can clearly see the parallels to my research improving humanitarian health assistance after disasters. To put my uh, presentation tonight into context, I would like to take stock on our common history, that of the immigrants. Willem Moberg was a Swedish author that wrote four books about Christina and Karl Oskar and their families' in endeavors when emigrated from Småland in Sweden to settle here in Minnesota. The book eloquently describes the context from where they emigrate, from poverty, misery, and lack of hope. They come here for a future that uh, looked much more uh, bright than that in Sweden at the time. During a 50 to 60-year period, starting around 1850, and actually that was the year that this church was uh, funded, around 1 million uh, Swedish people, uh, 25% of the total population emigrated to the United States and mainly to areas in Minnesota in search for a better future. Today, young people in search for a better future are trying to leave Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, and other devastated countries. On the shores of West West Africa, they set out in leaking boats to try to reach the shores of Europe. But they are not welcomed like the Swedes were when they came here. They are rejected by the world. One event that triggered the departure for Christina and Kaloskar was when their barn burned down. They suddenly woke up one night to find the sky lit up by a fire. In nightgowns, they desperately fought the fire. They hurled water and tried to save what could be saved. Neighbors arrived with buckets. The disaster was a fact. Someone rang the church bell, and more people arrived to assist. But despite, despite the efforts, the barn burned down. There was no 911 number to call, no fire brigade, and no insurance to claim. Neighbors that saw the fire and heard the church bell came to help, but those living further away couldn't do anything to help. Humanitarian assistance was geographically limited. It ended at the curve of the road. Without information or geographical access, it was not possible to help. But today we have information. Within minutes of an earthquake it's possible to get a text message that defines the exact geographical location of the earthquake and the magnitude. Aeroplanes can depart rapidly and within 24 hours reach any place around the world. But does this mean that we have to help? That we have to do something? And What is our moral responsibility towards people affected in countries far away? What is our moral responsibility in this new globalized world? To help is to be active. And it's easy to know that water buckets are needed when the neighbor's barn is on fire. But it's difficult to know what a stranger affected by an earthquake needs. When preparing today's presentation, I had a working title, Lessons from Disasters Relief Worldwide. But I didn't know where to start. What message should I convey to you tonight? It took an email that contained a new title for my presentation to trigger me. The new title, Bringing Hope to Haiti, was presented to me, and it provoked me. It provoked me enough to get me started. But why was I provoked by this title? Well, for me, it sends out a message. A message that it is relief from outside that is the hope and the solution. More relief is equal to more hope. A message bringing hope to Haiti that conveys that it is the good guys from outside that is going to come in with hope to save the poor victims. Maybe I have deliberately misinterpreted this title, but my experience after returning from Haiti underlines that such view is common. The media has helped reinforce uh, this image by portraying Haiti as hell on earth and that the affected population are helpless victims or violent gangsters. The doctors arriving from the outside are the heroes fighting the dark forces of mankind. I do not subscribe to this view. In my experience, the ones bringing hope on Haiti are the silent Haitian majority that has stood up from the rubble and brushed, up, brushed away the dust. The neighbors that help each other. The women and men that despite poverty takes care of distant relatives that have become orphaned. People against all odds continue to live their life. They are the heroes on Haiti. What does it mean to bring hope? Well, during my work in low-income countries, I have developed what I consider a healthy skepticism. or what what well-intended efforts from rich countries can do to solve problems in poor countries. History supports my skepticism. It is easy to be blinded when on a mission to do do good. This can be especially noticeable when the intentions are for people far away towards poor victims that we know little about. When directed to people considered inferior Humanitarianism elevated to the rank of ideology reveals its profound ambivalence. And I would like to quote the French author Noggi, who a bit cynically wrote, In the humanitarian relation, the power one holds over the other is absolute. It is this that allows the immediate transformation of a life machine into a death machine, and vice versa. For the master, the punishment is inseparable from the gift. The providential function of the humanitarian ideology is profoundly ambiguous, as only providence, as its name indicates, has the transcendental power to feed and to kill, to lose and to save, to starve and to nurse, to destroy and to uplift. In my work I've been trying to move away from glorifying the efforts of disaster relief. Humanitarian assistance is not heroic. It is purely an act to preserve human dignity. Humanitarian assistance has its fundamental starting point in the humanitarian imperative, which is a non-negotiable impulse. It is this impulse that makes us rush up to the lady that has fallen in the queue of the supermarket line to help her. We don't ask why we try to help her. We just rush there, we just do it. It is a non-conscious act that defines us as humans. But to guide humanitarian assistance, there is also need for knowledge and understanding of context. The context is the environment in which a disaster occurs. And after this presentation, uh, you will get a small uh, graph that illustrates context. And it's not possible to to discuss it here, but I will refer to to this concept of of, uh, putting using uh, socioeconomy and health as an indicator to describe uh, context. And it's clear that the world has changed dramatically the last 50 years. We have to uh, stop using old terminologies that divide the world into, it, into two parts, such as underdeveloped and developed world. They don't fit anymore to describe the world industrialized and non-industrialized countries. For example, China is that an industrialized and non-industrialized countries. The concepts are simply not good enough to describe the diversity of countries that exist today in the world. A better way to divide the world is by their socio-economic status. And if we look in the world, we can, we can clearly see that there are at least three different groups of countries. There are low-income countries, middle-income countries, and high-income countries. And the health status of the population is a linear, it's linearly related to the socio-economy. The richer countries, the more children survive. The poorer, the more children die. And in the world, uh, if you look, the, the, the child mortality rate varies between 20 percent and 0.2 percent, a factor of 100 between the healthiest country and the the non-healthiest country in the world, between the richest and the poorest. The Democratic Republic of Congo is a low-income country with very high child mortality. I've worked there. I visited a small rural hospital two hours outside Bukavo in eastern Congo. And to my surprise, I found a functional hospital. And in the main patient room with 30 beds, there were smiling, happy women lying with uh, children by their breast, They had recently received a life-saving cesarean section. And I was very happy to see this. And as I turned to the hospital director to discuss with me, he looked, he looked, uh, he didn't look happy. And he said, we have not received any money from the government or any agency for more than 10 years. And we continued to talk and uh, walked through the hospital and we passed a rusty door. Curiously, I asked the director what was behind the door, and he swung it open. And inside, in a very small room, there were three ladies lying in three old beds, each of them with a baby at their breast. And then I asked the hospital director what these women were doing here. Oh, they have received a cesarean section, but their their treatment is finished now. So then I asked him, so what are they doing here if they finish their treatment? Well, he said, they haven't paid their bill. So then I asked him how long have they been here? Three months. Uh, he said, we cannot, do ch- we cannot be charitable. We don't have any money. We just have to get the money from the patients. Otherwise, we have to close the hospital. This is the fact. I mean, I would like to give free care, but it's simply not possible. And I nodded and, and then I, 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 I reached for my wallet and actually I had $120, which was the cost for three C-sections, because it was $40 each. And then I gave it to the, to the women, and they were very happy to be released. But as I turned around, there was a line of coughing old men with TB, others with crutches, waiting to be released from the hospital. And this is a fact around the world, that today, healthcare is not something that uh, is affordable for many people. Uh, and the lack of capacity to pay for health care constitutes a major challenge for populations, and poverty induced by healthcare spending is a growing disaster. And in order to provide disaster relief, we have to have an understanding of the health system in order to plan better for the assistance. A disaster can have a sudden or slow onset, it can be due to man made or natural causes. And a disaster develops when a hazard meets vulnerability. And the main determinant for vulnerability is the socioeconomic status. This means that the disaster can be avoided if vulnerability is reduced. If an earthquake of a similar magnitude, as the one on Haiti, had struck San Francisco, Tokyo, we would not have all have seen as many casualties, maybe not even any. However, it would have been very costly. The likelihood of dying in an earthquake in a low-income country is 100 times higher than if a similar earthquake affects a high-income country. And this is well illustrated by the strong earthquake that struck, that struck Chile in February. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, about one month after uh, the, the Haitian earthquake, the Chilean earthquake struck, and again it was earthquake on the media. And this time it was a 100 times stronger earthquake than the one on Haiti. And the media message was clear, you know. Devastation in small cities traveled, uh, images of, of, of uh, devastation traveled all around the world. And everybody said, is this another Haiti? But it doesn't take rocket science to understand the differences in vulnerability between Chile and Haiti. Chile has a gross national product per capita that is more than 10 times higher than that one of Haiti. And child mortality is 10 times lower than Chile. Actually, Chile has the same child mortality as the United States. So Chile is more of a high-income country. And Chile had enough resources, doctors, and helicopters to handle the consequences of the massive earthquake. MSF sent a team to assess the needs. They could quickly conclude that outside assistance was no more needed. International humanitarian assistance takes place in a legal vacuum. There are no international laws that guarantee that an earthquake-affected person on Haiti has any right to international assistance. There is no international 991 number to call, no agency to take responsibility besides the government of the affected country. If Sweden or United States decides to send blankets or doctors to Haiti, it is purely on a voluntary basis either as an act of humanitarianism or as a political sign, or maybe both. Studies have shown that the level of humanitarian assistance is more based on the geographical interest of the affected country than on the needs of the affected population. In August 2008, Russian troops invaded South Ossetia in Georgia. A few hundred died and people were displaced because of the fighting and bombing There was political tension between Russia and the outside world. It was a political rather than humanitarian crisis. Nevertheless, the outside world wanted to help the affected. Hundreds of freight planes loaded with medicines and material arrived in the capital, Tbilisi. The Swedish government decided to send five ventilators, and I was asked to assess the needs for more assistance. As I attended a UN meeting, I got a bit tired of the discussions and decided to leave early and stepped outside to smoke a cigarette which is a very bad habit I have when I go on missions I have to admit. And as I was inhaling the first part of the cigarette I saw another man stepping out of the same meeting and he came to me smiling, looking happy because he had a friend to smoke with. So I lit his cigarette and we started to discuss uh, I introduced myself and my, my mission, and then he laughed and said, and, to, and told me who he was, and he was actually the Minister of Health. So I was sharing a cigarette with the Minister of Health, <laughs> which, it's, which is almost, almost made me laugh. But it also gave me the opportunity to di- discuss something, you know, uh, in, in between four eyes about the situation in Georgia in the height of this uh, disaster. So I asked him, so what is the situation? And he said, it is terrible. And I was thinking, oh, there must be a lot of dead people here. It must be a very difficult situation. And then he said, we have received more than 15,000 surgical kits. It will last us 10 years. In addition, there are boxes with 6 million syringes and needles. We have to rent storage to keep up, to to store all this material. Because if all this material gets out, then market will be destroyed. So it wasn't the wounded or the displaced that was the problem for the Ministry of Health. It was all the material that was sent there. So sending material and medicines without assessing the needs and understanding the context is often wrong and may create more problems than they solve. But but medicines are an amazingly strong symbols of help. And we can see that everywhere in the media, that sending medicine is the instinct, is the first, is the knee-jerk reaction that people do when there is a disaster. And besides this assessment, I also found that actually Georgia has uh, twice the number of doctors per capita compared to Sweden. So there was no need for doctors. Uh, in 2008, I worked in Haiti to assess the needs after the uh, typhoons that struck the country. I also did uh, a study on the health system. The patients in Haiti had to rely on the aid provided by the 400 Cuban doctors working in the country. Lack of health care, bad governance, high vulnerability and poverty was the context in which the po- powerful earthquake struck. And for the first time in history, a densely populated capital was affected by a large and strong earthquake. This in combination made the effects of of the earthquake devastating. Bringing hope to Haiti. Yes, Haiti needed massive outside assistance. One hour after the earthquake struck, night fell. And you can just imagine, there was no electricity. There was dust in the air. There were people screaming from everywhere, being caught under the rubble. And as night set, the the number of of screams uh, diminished as people were dying under the rubble. It was pure horror. MSF, Doctors Without Borders, has been working on Haiti since 20 years and has been running two hospitals. Both of the hospitals were severely damaged by the earthquake and staff was caught under the buildings and staff died. The surgical needs were enormous. A few days after the earthquake, I arrived to work for MSF and set up a field hospital close to the epicenter. In my team of 20 people from 14 countries, including Cameroon, Rwanda, Brazil, Peru, we worked day and night to operate and to care for the injured. However, there were huge problems of coordination between the agencies providing relief. The head of United Nations on Haiti died in the earthquake and the UN was paralyzed for the first few weeks. A problem was the lack of knowledge and experience of those arriving from outside. Setting up and running a surgical unit in a disaster context requires a machinery. It requires logistics, electricity, and water, a place to sleep, and food. Too many doctors arrived with a mission of less than a week or so, with a bag of medicines and surgical instruments. Many of them were obviously disappointed because there was not a lot for them to do. They had no place to work, and they didn't, hadn't prepared themselves. And they returned home with an incomplete mission. There were lots of good intentions, but the difficulty of disaster relief became painfully obvious. And without proper organization and knowledge and experience, these good intentions didn't materialize in efficient results that served the affected population. Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, was, for, was formed in 1971 by engaged young French doctors that wanted to change. MSF still combines medical work with témoignage, which is bringing witness about atrocities and violations of humanitarian principles. MSF's first-hand-handedly watched and spoke out against. The inability of the international community to protect civilians against being massacred in Srebrenica in Bosnia in 1994. In MSF watched Tutsis being killed during their genocide in Rwanda and became painfully aware that doctors cannot stop a genocide. Currently some 10,000 doctors, nurses and local staff from more than 70 countries work together to preserve human dignity and to save life. MSF is not based on charity ideals, but on ideals for a change. And, uh, for, for change, It is based on humanitarian principles and medical ethics. And it's clear that MSF is not the solution to human suffering caused by disaster. The solution lies elsewhere. But MSF is one expression underpinning the belief that if a human right if if, if there is a human right to have access to health care when needed whether it's among earthquake affected in Haiti or illegal immigrants in Sweden. MSF is responding to system failure and loudly pointing out that governments should assume assume their responsibility. It is the world's largest independent medical relief agency. To conclude I would like to summarize by a few words by the author Joseph Conrad. More than a hundred years ago he wrote left alone with his own weakness man is capable of anything if we believe in mankind and a civilized world we cannot leave disaster affected people alone we can't turn away and say that we don't care because we know the information is out there and the consequences of looking away and such behavior will endanger our own future on this planet i'm convinced that we can do more and that we can do much better. But to achieve this and to, and to be successful in our work to assist disaster affected population, uh, we have to be um, combining not only, we have to be using not only the warm heart, but also using the cold brain. And together, that should, be, that should help us to do a better work. Thank you very much for listening.
0: Thank you Johan von Schrieb. You're listening to Forum Fest, the Westminster Town Hall Forum's new summer series broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster and moderator of Forum Fest. Our speaker tonight is Swedish surgeon and humanitarian Dr. Johan von Schrieb. Now while the ushers collect questions from our in-house audience, I would like to invite you to join us for the remaining events at Forum Fest and for our fall town hall forums. Information on upcoming programs can be found at westminsterforum.org. And now Dr. Von Schrieb, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question, uh, is, could you tell us a little bit more about your experience in Haiti? You said you
1: arrived four days after the
0: earthquake. What exactly did you find and what did you do?
1: Well, we were, our plan was to fly into Port-au-Prince, but that was impossible because the airport was overloaded and it was not possible to get landing permission. So we arrived in the Dominican Republic and then with the, with the car we managed to get uh, to Port-au-Prince during four or five hours and it was total devastation. So we met up, with we were about 15 of us arriving together and we met up with a team of MSF that had been there during the earthquake and obviously they were were shocked and they were uh, uh, tired and they had tried during the first day when everything was chaotic to do something. And then we split up, there were four hospitals uh, set up and I took charge of one that was set up uh, more close to the epicenter. And we erected together with and employing uh, local doctors and nurses. So we, uh, we employed about 100 people during the first few days. And then we erected tents because MSF, is this is really their speciality. Everything is, is pre-packed in containers and they are stored on, on the large airports around Europe and they can be flown uh, immediately and be transported rapidly. So we have kits for 25 operations that can be used immediately. And of course, the principles for conducting war surgery, which it was, uh, when you, even though it wasn't a war, but the same principles uh, should be used, meaning that the wounds are infected. you have to be you cannot close the wounds, you have to leave it open. The anesthesia you use is extremely simple anesthesia, which is in our part of the world, it's used for veterinary medicine, but for war surgery, it's appropriate because it's safe. Uh, and we had four operation theater in, in, in my hospitals and we were working basically day and night because there were so many injured. And then quite rapidly, only after a week or so, uh, the number of casualties rapidly decreased. And that you see normally in, in disaster situations how, how quickly the certain situation normalizes. And immediately the need for caesarean section, for example, uh, increased so only after a week 10 days the major operations we were doing were C-sections and you know coming back to the health system and the problem of the failed health system before we saw a lot of, of uh, untreated uh, chronic conditions such as breast cancer etc., that had not uh, been taken care of prior to the the crisis because uh, people didn't have money to pay for it so it was very hectic uh, it was a fantastic collaboration with the local Haitian doctors and nurses and this hospital is still running, but of course, you know, um, it has to be over time. And be, the resources uh, are going to be used elsewhere, but for the time being, it's still needed there. But uh, the immediate needs are covered for the time being. But now, of course, there are, are different challenges for the Haitian population with typhoons, etc., lack of shelter, and, and lack of money to, uh, and lack of employment to, to work, and, and, uh, and a lack of ways to earn your living and obviously it's easy for, for a whole community to be dependent on outside aid.
0: And what kinds of things were you doing as a, as a doctor on the ground in Haiti and uh, were you working collaboratively with others in Haiti or on your own?
1: Well that was one of the main problems, how to collaborate and what to do and, and it's clear that it should be the role of United Nations when in a collapsed society to coordinate the work and as I told you the. United Nations was down on their knees, they weren't capable of coordinating and everybody basically was busy with their own uh, patients that were in their compound. And a lot of uh, other agencies referred patients to our hospital because at the time we were the uh, only stable yeah. hospital that had uh, possibilities for, for people to stay overnight. And my role was initially to, to do surgery but I was there as the, as the medical coordinator for this hospital. So it was to set up the hospital, make it function, Ensure that the uh, 50 beds uh, we had uh, were used properly and uh, that we had the equipment necessary. We had the doctors. And immediately the, the beds were filled. So it took, didn't take more than a few days until we had uh, 20 patients with fractures of the femur, which is a very complicated condition that needs uh, special care. And how long were you there in Haiti? At that? I was there for three and a half weeks. And then basically the first phase was over and, and uh, it was a new. And also I think it, it's the lesson from working in this type of settings is after this, type, after this time period you're, you're very tired because it's a full on 24 hour experience. Now, can you tell us something
0: about the collaboration with uh, other NGOs? There, are there too many NGOs in a place like Haiti when there's a disaster and the, the, the complication that results from that?
1: Well we always see that the problem with, with international assistance is that there is no uh, legal framework for who can work and who cannot work. Everybody comes with their own mandate. Everybody wants to do what they have de- decided to do. If one agency has decided they want to work with children, they can do so, even though there might be more need for the elderly, etc. So that is really a challenge for uh, the humanitarian endeavor in, in disasters to, to ensure that, that everybody uh, gets help and that the, the, the help is divided among those uh, that are there to to, uh, uh, provide it. But again if you don't have a legal if you don't have a whip you can't tell anybody what to do. People will agencies will still continue what to do. They have their backpack with the money and their mandate from back home and they do as they please and that is really a a main challenge. For MSF which is uh, the world's uh, biggest uh, independent and and, uh, uh, agency it's I mean we try to collaborate, but it's more that, that agencies send patients to us than we are actively uh, collaborating with others. And I think also MSF has a, a long tradition of, of not participating in, uh, in a lot of these uh, solutions. Like in Afghanistan, the, the, NATO, the head of NATO uh, said recently that he was upset that the humanitarian agencies didn't collaborate with NATO to, to help the population. NATO wanted to set the agenda. And uh, the only the legal framework there is for international assistance is actually for that in conflict where it claims that, that you know, to be a humanitarian you have to be independent and you have to be neutral and you have to be impartial which NATO cannot claim to be but still they want others to follow them and MSF strongly uh, protests about that approach and strongly takes uh, a distance from that approach otherwise it's impossible to, to provide assistance uh, those that mostly need it, rather than to become a part of a political uh, process.
0: Is MSF still involved in Haiti, and if so, how long do they expect to stay?
1: Well, they've been there for 20 years, and I'm sure they will be there for another 20 years.
0: And what are the greatest needs in Haiti now? What, what do you see as MSF as the going forward
1: the greatest place of need? Well, when we talk about Haiti, we have to understand what it looked like before. And I was surprised now coming back after the earthquake to see that maybe some of the destruction was not due to the earthquake. It was there before. And uh, of course, this is challenging to to, to see. and, And I think everybody now is very eager to change Haiti. And I think we have to be very cautious to travel too quickly. We have to give Haiti at least 50 years. We have to give it a generation. And by doing so, we have to do it step by step. And the the work that MSF can do is to help train uh, nurses and doctors. We can help, you know, uh, provide assistance such as they do uh, at the maternal health hof- uh, hospital. We can uh, start uh, uh, advocating for uh, assistance for uh, that more aid people on should receive HIV medications. That those with uh, malaria received the correct treatment etc. I think MSF has a very strong voice when it comes to to setting the agenda for uh, the health policies in a number of countries worldwide and I think this is what MSF will do on Haiti while still continuing to provide emergency surgery. MSF is running since 15 years back one of the uh, the only trauma surgery unit in Port-au-Prince and uh, they continue to come in gunshots and, and, uh, and traffic injuries and that will continue. But hopefully, and, and it's run now only by Haitian surgeons and orthopedic, uh, uh, gen, uh, Haitian orthopedic and general surgeons. So there are no uh, international surgeons there. They manage quite well by themselves. It's only supported by MSF. And this is, is, gives hopes for the future.
0: You mentioned there were 400 Cuban doctors in Haiti when you arrived. Did you interact with them? And uh, there are a lot of Minnesotans interested in, in Cosas Cubanas, Cuban things. Can you tell us about your interaction with the Cubans there or perhaps elsewhere?
1: Well, I think this is a very interesting, uh, uh, something that's neglected and not at all uh, talked about and not at all written about. Uh, Maybe in the United States there is a political reason for it, but for the rest of the world there is no reason for not uh, uh, discussing and and highlighting uh, the efforts of the Cuban doctors. And I'm currently involved in a research project where we are working with a Cuban institution and looking specifically on the earthquake in in Kashmir in 2005, where I worked also. And actually, the Cubans sent over 30 field hospitals to Kashmir at the time. And some of the doctors I've met when I was in Cuba recently said that they they were basically told from one day to another to leave, uh, to go to uh, Kashmir, and then they were gone for seven months you couldn't find a Swedish surgeon that would accept to be sent away for seven months and of course I mean due to the the, the system political st- system this is possible and, and, and uh, it is maybe not so um, obvious that this can be replicated elsewhere but I think that the principles and the low-tech uh, approach that they use the Cubans it is very well adapted to, to, to uh, disasters in in both low and to certain extent middle-income countries and, and uh, Cuba is, is, is constantly has its disasters with uh, typhoons, et cetera. so I think they are in a very, very good position, and they have doctors elsewhere. I think it's about 25,000 Cuban doctors all scattered around the world, so they have a lot of experience.
0: Any particular uh, encounters with Americans in Haiti in responding to the disaster that you care to share with us? Did you meet with Bill Clinton, for instance, while you were there?
1: I was busy in the operation theater. <laughs>
0: Now, what about mental health needs uh, in a disaster setting? How do you deal with the mental health issues that are in those who've experienced trauma
1: like this? This is a very important topic and and one that the last 10 years has grown uh, as an issue in disaster situations. And MSF has developed a very uh, strong um, policy when it comes to responding. And and in my team, there were three psychologists and, and one psychiatrist. And obviously when you respond to, to medical uh, to mental health problems you have to have a very good knowledge of the situation you have to have understand the context extremely well and especially in Haiti with the voodoo and everything that's around it it's, it's not so easy to come from a Swedish uh, psychological or from the office of a Swedish psychologist and think you can interact and know what the problems are you have to be extremely generic huh? you have to work in groups and you have to have a, and not uh, go too much in deep, and and it was in. It's been interesting to follow the work, uh, as I worked in in Kashmir, and then I also did an evaluation in Darfur quite recently on mental health support, and it's interesting to see that that it it really relates a lot to, to psychosocial support. I mean, if we feel safe, if we know that our children are safe, if we know we have a roof. Uh, over that that we can sleep under uh, during the night if we know that there is food and that we are not threatened then a lot of these mental health consequences can be avoided so I think one of the the, priority for for mental health projects is to ensure that the psychosocial uh, support is functioning rather than trying to medicalize a normal reaction which is usually is uh, we talk about PTSD post-traumatic stress etc I think We have to uh, leave that for the time being and focus on on providing uh, comfort and and, and ensuring stability for the affected and that will probably have more impact than than immediately rushing out and trying to to treat, treat it as a medical illness. You spoke about
0: the importance of understanding the context when you go to deliver humanitarian aid or disaster assistance to a particular area. Can you describe a time when your team misjudged the need or misunderstood the context, and how you adapted with uh, that situation with limited supplies, lack of time, or misunderstood context?
1: Well, I think there was one which is more of a middle-income setting, but remember the 2004 Beslan incident when the school was uh, uh, taken over by a group of terrorists, and, and children were, were host, uh, became hostage, and, and it ended up with 600 people being killed. And then it was, was not with MSF at the time, it was through the Swedish National Board of Health and Welfare that was asked by the Russian government for assistance, so they wanted to send things to, to, to this part. So instead I said, I, I'll go there myself to see if there are needs for trauma, surgeons, etc., because that's what they were talking about. And I traveled there, and immediately I could see that within 20 minutes from this hospital, and I didn't know this before, there were four big hospitals. 20 minutes from this school, there were four big hospitals. And there were over 2,200 beds in these hospitals, I mean, during normal times. And there were over 900 doctors, of which 500 were ready to care for the wounded. So there were about one doctor per injured. And I was thinking, oh, what about the, the, the surgical experience of this uh, Russian surgeon? Maybe it's not so good. So then I, I came into the mornings. Uh, you know, all the surgeons in the morning have a, a drink coffee together. That's uh, probably an international thing that I've learned. And also, all the surgeons note down what they do, for the for the history. They want to show what they have done, how many operations they've done, etc. It's very important for surgeons to do this. And I can say that as a surgeon, otherwise they would shoot me. But anyway, when I came in their, to their uh, coffee uh, pause in the morning, there were about 10 or 15 surgeons there talking, and they all were wearing their, their, their chef hats. It looked very interesting. And then the door opened, and then the, the head of the, the, this clinic at this major hospital came in and, and asked me what I was doing there. So I was trying to explain to him. I was there to do this assessment, assessment et cetera. And I was saying, so what is the situation? So what have you done? He said, well, I, have, uh, I am a surgeon. Oh, oh, where have you been? Oh, I've been working in Afghanistan. Afghanistan, that's interesting. Uh, where did you work? So I, I worked outside Herat. Herat, I was also working there. When were you there? So I say I was there there in 1989. 89, that's when I was there too. On what side were you? And then I had to sort of you know, drift away from the topic, because he was working for the Russian army, and I was with uh, Mujahideen with MSF at the time. So we were, on, but we became very good friends. And it turned out that more than 20 of these of the surgeons, more than and 50% of the surgical faculty, had war surgical experience. In Sweden, at the major uh, university hospital, at like Karolinska uh, University Hospital, there's one surgeon of 60 or 70 surgeons that has war surgical experience. So we concluded in the study that there would be there would be no difference in, in, in uh, casualty or or it would. The, the number of people that would have died in, in hospitals if the same type of, of uh, uh, disaster would have affected Stockholm would have been no different compared to, to Russia. They were more than capable than the Swedish surgeons. And that's an example of context. I think otherwise there are a lot of other um, of examples of, of uh, uh, lack of, of uh, capacity to do a good uh, needs analysis of the situation. And usually it comes to underestimating the capacities of the local doctors and nurses and those around. That's usually the, the main problems we do. We underestimate their capacities and their willingness to do. And I think that's a shame. I mean, uh, uh, a, uh, a primary health care doctor uh, in Congo knows more of the common surgery that needs to be done in, in, uh, in an African context compared to a Swedish general surgery. surgery. I mean. An African general practitioner knows how to do a C-section, to do a splenectomy, and knows how to take care of, of complicated deliveries and fractures when a Swedish tra- a surgeon does not. A Swedish surgeon is good on doing laparoscopic surgery, but has no clue of, of doing these other operations. And, and that uh, lack of, of, of capacity and lack of, of analysis of the context, I think, is the main uh, problem that we have.
0: Picking up on that uh, comment, that does the highly specialized nature of, of training of, of doctors today, surgeons for instance, make them uh, uh, less useful on the field
1: than a disaster because yeah. of their special Absolutely. I mean, a surgeon must be able to do a C-section. You, it's, it's almost impossible today to find a general surgeon that knows how to do a C-section, at least in Sweden. I don't know what's like here, but I would think that it's the same same situation here. So we have to retrain them. We have to send them for for more training. And even in in Sweden, the Swedish surgeons now go to South Africa to learn trauma surgery because we don't have any more traumas in Sweden. You know, we have 320 people that die in car accidents, while in Nigeria they have 50,000 people that die in traffic accidents. So trauma is basically extinct in Sweden. And of course, the trauma surgeons need to to have practice. Without practice, they don't know how to do the job. Doctors Without Borders
0: was made to leave Darfur. What happened? How can the situation be remedied in that area? Any comments on your work there?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one. You know, uh, if you look back in history, MSF has been kicked out of certain countries. In 1985, MSF was kicked out of Ethiopia when they openly said that the government was using food aid for political purposes to uh, move people from one area to other. The, the food was being u- used as a bait to get hold of, of uh, insurgents and to get hold of young uh, men t- and to transport them to other parts of the uh, country. And this was true, and MSF spoke out about it, uh, but they were kicked out. And later it took, it took uh, six months or so before the international community reacted and spoke out with a, strain, uh, with a strong voice, and, and this uh, uh, displacement stopped. In Darfur, it was uh, something else. I mean, MSF had been in trouble before in Darfur because they had been openly speaking out about the terror against the civilian population, about rapes, etc. So MSF was already not on very good speaking terms with the uh, government in uh, Khartoum. And then, when uh, uh, the president Bashir was uh, brought on trial in The Hague, it was just a few days before I arrived there. MSF was was kicked out of of Darfur, uh, together with a number of other of NGOs, as, as a response to the international uh, community, rather than as a response directly direct towards MSF. At the time I was there for WHO, so I could still travel around. But it was clear that uh, the work that uh, MSF and, and the, the other agencies that were uh, expelled from, from Darfur was not being uh, filled by, uh, by the government, even though they were, they were trying, uh, at least for the first month. So, the situation in Darfur is, is of course, extremely big. But it's always like that the, the world can only handle one disaster at a time. So, if when Haiti came, disaster, uh, Darfur, uh, the, the spotlight on Darfur disappeared. So, uh, we will see where, when it can come back again in highlights. There will have to be some sort of something that fits the media format. But because if, if it's something today uh, in relation to disaster, it's the media that decides a lot where the next. Uh, uh, where a- more aid should be delivered because they decide on, on, on uh, they need images, they need good images and they need good stories. And very often we follow what they say, which is, uh, I think, uh, shameful. I think we should, the needs of the population should be able to stand out as, as uh, the ones directing where we go and what we do, not uh, the media. The media shouldn't point out where we where the international community is, is putting their efforts. Are there differences in the kinds of response
0: needed to, to a, a natural disaster as opposed to a disaster made by human hands? And if you can say so, which would you prefer to be
1: responding to? I think a natural disaster is much more clear-cut. You have a start, uh, and then usually you can project very much what the needs will be. We have developed something we call remote magnitude assessment or assumption where we within hours have managed to predict very much what the needs will be. While in Darfur we know there are chronic needs, there are needs related to the political situation and I think in a lot of the man-made disasters, the humanitarian assistance is not the solution to the problem. And uh, I think it's important not to serve as the fig leaf uh, for uh, political, uh, for strong political uh, 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 power, for taking, uh, for, for doing what the politicians should be doing, for doing diplomacy, etc. I think very often we can, humanitarian assistance, as I, w- as I said in, in, in Georgia, was used very much to cover up for lack of political ambitions, and I think. Humanitarian assistance shouldn't uh, do that. So I think there's a clear uh, distinction between the sudden and the more slow onset. I think what is very interesting is is, uh, hunger crises. We don't call it famines anymore. It's more called hunger. uh, And the problem relating to to that that children are malnourished is usually not a lack of food, but it's a lack of capacity to pay for, uh, to buy the food usually a market failure that the, the prices of, of food has, has gone up very quickly. And we saw this in Nigeria in 2006, 2007, when suddenly there were more children malnourished and the people were discussing whether to bring in food, with, rather than analyzing the problem to understand what the causes were. And there were, of course, a lot of different causes. There were political failures, there were, uh, people were exporting the food because the prices were lower or were higher in neighboring countries et cetera, et cetera, which and then the, the income of the population had gone down. So actually it was not lack of food, it was lack of, of purchasing. And this is important to analyze that when you respond to the different crises. And as a final question, can you,
0: can you tell us, Dr. Von Schrieff, what is it that motivates you to do this work?
1: It's meeting the people out there huh? and it's uh, learning more, because I learned so much from, from meeting people around the world. And obviously, you know, there's, um, uh, it feels it's good to work with people, and it's good to work together to try to, to solve problems. But it's also important to know that uh, you are not there to solve the problem. Huh? And I think that's uh, I think some some colleagues that that started out they became a bit cynical by you know they saying what's the use of doing that. But it comes back to your expectations. What are our expectations on mankind? Is it that we should have peace on earth and and uh, that. We shouldn't be uh, angry and fight, there should be no wars. I try to be more realistic and I'm just sort of uh, happy by the fact that 95 or 97 percent of the population are nice people that can sit together like this without hitting each other, that can (laughs) go to work in the subway or or even sit in line uh, with the cars going to work or uh, end up in refugee camps without hurting each other. And these silent people never get a voice. Huh? These people that really are the backbones of humanity. And it's fantastic to interact with them. And they, I think, definitely the hope for the future, not the other ones that we know will be there all the time, it's the one making the problems. But obviously, the ones making the problems are the ones that gets the attention and, and uh, that we focus on. Let's focus on the other ones instead, that, that uh, are the positive ones. Thank you, Johann van Schrie.